This episode is brought to you by BTR Nation. BTR is a female founded brand that is on a mission to end mindless snacking with their protein bars with a purpose. Snacks get a bad reputation, high in sugar, ingredients you can't pronounce, ultra processed. But what if you had a snack that checked all the right boxes, a snack with a purpose? Because when we snack mindfully, when we honor our bodies, our hunger, our snackiness, we transform our mindset. BTR bars and chocolate truffle cups are made with no gluten, no dairy, no soy, no added sugar, no corn or rice syrups, no GMOs, no natural flavors, no sugar alcohols, no stevia, no inflammatory ingredients, and no gums or fillers, the cleanest label in the category. They only use ingredients that you can pronounce and adaptogenic superfoods like reishi, lion's mane, and cordyceps. They also taste delicious. I always have the peanut butter chocolate chip bliss bars in my cabinet, and Erica doesn't go a day without having the dark chocolate truffle cups. Besides the many delicious snacks to choose from, we love the story of BTR. Founder and owner Ashley Marie found inspiration in an unlikely place at an unlikely time, at the hospital cafeteria. When both of her parents were diagnosed with cancer, her life turned upside down as she became their caretaker, and her own nutrition began to suffer. Ashley was devouring protein bars when she could, as many of us do, to fit in a meal or a snack. Most of the bars she quickly discovered were filled with sugar. After her parents passed away, she founded a bar brand based on their family mantra, be bold, tenacious, and resilient. If you want to try BTR bars and truffle cups, you can save 20% on your order with code COURAGEOUSWELLNESS all one word at btrnation.com. You can also find this link in our show notes and link tree on Instagram. Welcome to Courageous Wellness. My name is Erica Stein. And I'm Allie French. And this is a podcast about individual journeys within wellness and how to navigate it all. After Ali experienced a cancer diagnosis in her 20s, and Erica went through a self-love journey, we created a platform to interview real people from all walks of life that have combined all types of practices. From physical wellness to emotional and spiritual, we hear courageous stories and focus on why it's important to share them. We are both certified integrative nutrition health coaches and together with our community are learning to live our most purposeful lives by sharing one courageous story at a time. It takes courage to share these journeys and by talking about them, we aim to destigmatize the process. We want you to be your own health advocate, feel educated and informed on the latest in health and wellness and empower you to feel your absolute best. And because we want to bring forth a wide variety of stories, the opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect our own, but we hope the diverse and varied stories will empower you to make the best choices for your own life. So join us as we and our community share our courageous wellness. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to this week's episode of Courageous Wellness. We have such a good episode today with Dr. Judd. I think it's one of my, I want to say it's one of my favorite episodes Mm. of the year, but it's only February, but I'm going to, I'm going to say, let's check back in December. I bet this is going to be one of my favorite episodes of the whole year as an emotional eater, as somebody who has struggled with food and this topic, I, 
I just found it so unbelievably impactful. So we're going to get to his episode in a second. But before we do, we always open with our weekly updates. So Allie, what's going on with you this week? Well, I am, you know, I, a little ways back, I, I went away to uh, celebrate an anniversary, which was fun. Um, but it's interesting. I'm trying to think like, as far as my own habits go, one of the things that I have been incorporating more, especially in the mornings, just out of like ease, um, but also because I'm feeling so good is uh, a morning smoothie. And we focus a lot on blood sugar balance and our coaching. And um, I've been doing more plant-based smoothies, but that are really significant sources of protein as well. And um, Sprout Living, who we work with and we're big fans of, have like really delicious flavors. And what's cool about their protein is that they also have um, a lot of additional nutrients, not just a protein isolate. So use completely whole foods and um, lots of like functional mushrooms and wonderful, again, whole food ingredients. And they're super tasty. And my favorite one that we just got sent in the mail is uh, coffee and it has maca in it. And it's, um, it's, so yummy. I'm such a coffee nut, but like I've really, really reduced my caffeine consumption. I just do like a shot of espresso in the morning or a protein latte. But um, yeah, I've been doing smoothies with their coffee, um, their coffee protein. And I love to add like berries or Erica, I got the trick to do some like dark frozen cherries from you with some nut butter for some healthy fats. And I'll throw in some, maybe some dark greens, like some spinach, um, I also always add in like theirs has significant source of fiber in it, but I also always add in like a chia seed for some extra fiber. And, um, anyway, I, I'm just like making, I'm on this like rich kind of coffee smoothie kick. And it's like, I'm, I don't know, I guess it's the Jersey girl in me. I just love a coffee in the morning. It's my, it's my favorite way to start the day. I love a coffee smoothie. I think it's a really fun way to get in all those nutrients. And if anybody does struggle with caffeine or feeling mm -hmm. jittery with coffee, having a coffee with protein and superfoods and healthy fats, it does change the way the caffeine processes in our in the body. body. Yeah. So yeah, I cannot have coffee on an empty stomach. I have to have no. it with a protein or after I've had breakfast or else I do, I do get those jitters. And that's also good. Just like for anybody who's kind of conscientious about supporting their hormones, trying to avoid the coffee on the empty stomach is a good way to sort of start the day. Um, and I always, part of it's like ritualistic for me, I think, just like the smell of coffee, but I always have it when I go do my morning chanting practice. And so I think there's like a component of it being sort of like a little ritual in the morning for me and how I like to start my day. Um, so yeah, that's, it's, it's small, but it's just kind of, um, you know, one of the things that I'm enjoying and I feel like is really contributing to good energy to start my day and a clear mind to start our recordings in the morning. So um, truly, I was going to say truly, truly and what's up with you? <laughs> what's up with me? I, I just wanted to finish about that is I know like a lot of people are interested in incorporating more plants into their mm -hmm. diet or, you know, finding, I think finding a really good plant-based protein can be difficult because there's typically a lot of syrups or filler. And what I love about Sprout Living is that it is completely organic. It's a blend of, you know, real food ingredients that, you know, incorporates, it's just everything you need in a plant-based 
protein. And so if you do want to try it, you can save uh, 20% on Sprout Living products. Yes. And you can find all of that information in our show notes. You can use code courageous at checkout, but what's up with me? You know, I also recently was traveling. We went to visit some of my husband's family. I think I shared last week, all my favorite, like plain snacks, you know, Mm -hmm. all this like joyful yummies. Um, so just kind of getting back into the routine this week. Um, but again, like I said, I really loved this episode with Dr. Judd, I have incorporated a lot of the things we've talked about from this episode into my daily life. Um, I feel like it's helped me be even kinder to myself. And I think this work is a journey. You know, I think so many of our listeners, mm-hmm. they know my story. I have a self-love journey. I have an emotional eating journey. Um, but I think it's a process. I think we're onions and, you know, we just keep shedding different layers of this onion self that we are. And, um, yeah, I I just I can't I can't wait to finish the hunger habit. It's a book I'm recommending to clients and friends mm-hmm. and I took a lot from this episode. So, um yeah, I don't really have much of an update this week since I'm just kind of getting back into the swing of things from travel, but I can't wait to re-listen to this episode and yeah. probably take even more. So, should we get back into it? Absolutely. And I was just going to say before we do, I also feel like this is a really relevant episode even if like even if food isn't the thing, you mm. know, and we go into this in the, ep- in the episode and the conversation, but it can be really, it's really on the science of how our habits are formed and our, our brain works in, in these behaviors. And so I just found it like really empowering. And I think it can be applied to all aspects of our life. And I know Dr. Judd's research kind of spans over many different topics too. So Anyway, yes, let's get into it. Today, we welcome Dr. Judd Brewer to the podcast, who joins us to discuss his new book, The Hunger Habit. Dr. Judd is a New York Times bestselling author and thought leader in the field of habit change and the science of self-mastery, who blends over 20 years of experience with mindfulness training and a career in scientific research. He is passionate about understanding how our brains work and how to use that knowledge to help people make deep, permanent change in their lives with the goal of reducing suffering in the world at large. Dr. Judd is the Director of Research and Innovation at Brown University's Mindfulness Center, where he also serves as an Associate Professor in Behavioral and Social Sciences at the School of Public Health and Psychiatry at the School of Medicine at Brown University. Previously, Dr. Judd held research and teaching positions at Yale University and the University of Massachusetts Center for Mindfulness. His new book released on January 30th is titled The Hunger Habit, Why We Eat When We're Not Hungry and How to Stop. The Hunger Habit is based on his deeply researched plan proven to help us understand what is going on in our brains so that we can heal the guilt and frustration many individuals experience around eating. This is not a diet book pretending not to be a diet book. This is a step-by-step program that focuses on training our brains to tap into awareness, to change our relationship with food and eating, shifting it from fighting with ourselves to befriending our minds and bodies. There's no willpower, calorie counting, or restricted eating. The key is to learn how to work with our brains rather than resisting our impulses and to adopt an attitude of self-kindness rather than self-judgment. 
grounded in cutting edge neuroscience and Dr. Judd's several decades of clinical practice as a psychiatrist, the hunger habit is both accessible and compassionate. It will finally help you break out of food jail and reclaim your life. And we have a really fascinating conversation on the hunger habit and habits. And as Ali just mentioned, even if food isn't your thing, this can be applied to so many different areas of life. And we hope you enjoy the episode just as much as we did. Hi guys, before we get to today's episode, we want to share how excited we are to offer our community 20% off their first order at Sakara with code XO Courageous. We have been big fans of the company for years and the Sakara Life organic meal delivery program is based on a whole food plant-rich diet that includes fresh, nutrient-dense and delicious ingredients. It's perfect for those weeks you need a refresh or don't have time to meal prep. They also have a clean boutique, which offers delicious food forward bars, snacks, beauty water drops, and my personal favorite metabolism super powder, which works to fire up your metabolism, stabilize blood sugar, eliminate bloat and decrease puffiness. The naturally rich low sugar, dark chocolate flavor is perfect for smoothies or simply mixed with coffee and nut milk. I also regularly use the Sakar cookbook full of plant-rich recipes, which you can purchase on their website. Click the link in our show notes to visit sakara.com and use code XO Courageous for 20% off your first order. We know you will love it as much as we do. Now on to the episode. Welcome, Dr. Judd. Erica and I are very happy to have you on the show. Um, and we have lots of questions today. So just to get us started, can you tell our listeners a little bit about who you are, your personal background, and how that's led you into the research and the work that you're currently doing? I'd be happy to. So I'm, I, I'm formally trained as an addiction psychiatrist and a neuroscientist. And I actually started this work. So at the beginning of medical school, I was pretty stressed out, started meditating, found that I had no idea how my mind worked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in fact, didn't learn. Certainly, we get a lot of neuroscience and, you know, on the cellular and synapse level in medical school and in graduate school. But what I still was left with after, you know, after all those letters uh, was a fundamental understanding of how specifically to put that type of knowledge into action. And there were actually some missing missing pieces. Maybe I slept through that class in medical school or something like that. And so I I started my formal research career as an assistant professor studying habit change and mm. was in my clinic working with a lot of people with addictions and found that, you know, smoking cessation really challenging. And so developed a program. We studied it. We did a randomized controlled trial and got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. And I mentioned that because we were we were trying something novel and new, which we, which was mindfulness training using awareness mm. in this paradoxical approach, where <laughs> literally my patients would come in and say, "I want to quit smoking." I would I would send them home with the instructions to smoke, and they're like, "Did I get that right? My doc mm-hmm. just told me to smoke." But I would give them the instruction and pay attention. We can talk about how that works down, uh, in a minute. <laughs> But with that, we started developing a program to try to scale some of this training to make it more standardized. And so we were developing an app uh, called Craving to Quit, and pilot testers were telling us that they were changing their eating habits. And typically, somebody gains about 15 pounds when they quit smoking. And so I, I naively thought, oh, you know, they're just substituting snacking for smoking. And they corrected me. They said, no, no, doc, that's not it. We're actually using these same tools to work with our snacking habits. And so... 
when my, you know, that was a big aha moment for me to step back and say, oh, wait a minute, you know, what, what are the origins of these neural mechanisms behind addiction? And it turns out it goes all the way back to our evolutionarily conserved mechanisms around finding food and not becoming food. Mm. And so I shifted a lot of my lab's research first at Yale and then at, at uh, UMass and now at Brown uh, to studying this habit change around eating and how we set up these habits. And importantly, you know, as a clinician, I want to know how we can actually help people break these. And so, you know, learned a ton about some of the dominant paradigms that aren't that helpful in the process. And importantly, you know, studied, uh, developed and studied a program that seems to work pretty well. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing all of that. We are so excited to talk about, I mean, you're the author of your new book, The Hunger Habit, which was just released in January. And we want to talk all about that. So can we maybe break down what is the hunger habit? What are these habits that lead us to maybe make these choices that aren't always aligned with the choices we would like to make? Yeah. So the fundamental mechanism goes all the way back to our ancient ancestors who didn't have refrigerators or food delivery or diners that open 24 hours a day, right? So they had to find food, but not only did they have to find it, they had to go back and remember where it was so they could find it again the next day. And so this mechanism is set up, it's called positive reinforcement, has three core elements, a trigger, a behavior, and a result. And so imagine foraging, you know, you see some food, there's the trigger, you eat the food, there's the behavior. And then the result is your stomach sends this dopamine signal to your brain that says, remember what you ate and where you found it. And so the next day your stomach is rumbling and it's actually dopamine fires in anticipation of eating after we've learned something. So it says, Hey, go back and get that food. The corollary to that is if we're out foraging and we see a tiger or something, you know, that's, that's going to eat us. We can use the same mechanism, but it's flipped in the negative balance. It's called negative reinforcement where, you know, you see the tiger, that's the trigger, the behavior is that you run away. And then the reward is that you don't become lunch, right? And so you can learn to avoid danger that way. And those two mechanisms are still at play in modern day where, you know, we, we become this food mood relationship where we kind of cross these wires. And what I mean by that is, we start to learn, and often this is serendipitous because our brain isn't isn't rationally thinking, hey, this is a good idea. You know, why don't you try eating something when you're not hungry? Because that's not rational. <laughs> it's our survival brain that says, hey, you're kind of bored or you're lonely or you're sad or you're frustrated or you're angry or you're this or that. That doesn't feel good. And that's a flavor of negative reinforcement that trips this wire in your brain that says, hey, negative reinforcement. Oh, yeah, that's unpleasant. Make it go away. When I eat cookies or chocolate or ice cream, I feel better. And so we do that and we learn, oh, that's a good idea. Not really that it's a good idea, <laughs> but our brain says, hey, I temporarily feel better. I'm going to do this again. And so we set up these stress eating, these uh, boredom eating, these mindless eating, these overeating, whatever these habits are, they get set up both through negative and positive reinforcement. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. That makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense from this evolutionary perspective. And, and we, you know, Erica and I, as she mentioned, do integrative nutrition health coaching. And one of the things that we talk a lot about is like the nervous system response to, um, as far as even the impact on digestion. So it's like, if you're in this fight or flight, you know, the tiger scenario, which we're yeah. in 
not in literal ways anymore, but maybe through stressful emails or, you know, running late or, or you know, your boss is being hard on you or whatever that kind of, whatever might trigger that sort of sympathetic stress response. We've learned even that like that has an effect on digestion because you're not going to stop for a sandwich while you're out running a tiger metaphorically. Right. Um, which is so fascinating learning about sort of like the physiological response to stress. Um, but then as you just kind of, you shared with us, the opposite of that is like the dopamine, the positive and negative reinforcement, why we might want to go for it in, in also in times of stress, even right. if our body is not in the state of digesting it fully, um, and properly. So, Obviously, our culture is so different. As you said, we have 24-hour diners. We we have an abundance of sort of food uh, and food products available to us. Um, so, But so many people struggle with what we're talking about. So many mm -hmm. people. I don't think anyone's fully immune from it. I think we probably have all dealt with it on a different sort of scale. And maybe some people have different habits um, and relationships that they've developed than others. But um, you start off the book, like, how did we get in this mess? Mm -hmm. And I'm curious, uh, because it's such a prevalent thing, and so many people deal with this in extreme ways, and then in sort of minor ways, too. Um, but as you also mentioned, like food is necessary for our survival, right? It's, uh, it's not something like cigarettes or alcohol or other kind of things that maybe habitually we develop the same patterns around, but we need to all eat every day to live. Right. And so how do we, how did we get here and how do we start, how do we start to tackle this? Yeah. So one of the pieces is around the ready availability of food, right? And so if we're stressed, you know, how many of us keep some type of a snack or a candy in our desk drawer? And part of the part of the thing that enables that is that we can have think snacks that have a shelf life of probably a thousand years, right? So, so you couldn't keep the the berries or the meat or the whatever you know in your drawer because it went bad pretty quickly. And so we had to eat the food, right? Our ancient ancestors had to do that. So, so there are a number of forces at play in modern day where we've got food preservation where you can have access to it. It's put into bite-sized pieces. So you hardly have to do anything to prepare it besides open a wrapper and pop it in your mouth. And then on top of that, it's engineered in all sorts of ways to be addictive. You know, my favorite uh, headline from the, you know, I jokingly say my, my favorite peer reviewed journal, the onion <laughs> you know, uh, had a headline that says Doritos celebrates its 1 millionth ingredient, which kind of highlights all the different ways that we can engineer the bliss point, the vanishing caloric density, all of these things. So, and there've been many great books written about all the ways, the nefarious ways that the food industry has done this. So I don't, I just highlight that in the book as one of the issues. So that's one of the enablers, but the other, I think the other big piece is that we've learned to associate food with mood. And this is so common now that researchers had to come up with a new term and it's a misnomer because it's and when you when you think about it, it's not accurate, but it's the best way that they use to characterize eating when we're not hungry. And it's called hedonic hunger. It's a misnomer because we're not eating when we're hungry, but we're eating because of an emotion. 
And this is where these survival mechanisms, which are the oldest and the strongest you know, mechanisms that we know around learning, those get co-opted simply through, honestly, it's trial and error. We're not doing this consciously. We often set this up as, you know, years in advance, you know, even back to, you know, think of all the times we went to birthday parties when we were kids and we weren't hungry, but boy, that cake and ice cream sure went down, <laughs> you know, we, we were bottomless, bottomless pits. And so we learned to associate ice cream and cake, not with, not with hunger, but with a party, with celebration, with joy, with happiness. Yeah. I mean, this, this concept makes so much sense and I'm sure makes so much sense to so many of our listeners and even, you know, myself in general, I am and have historically been an emotional eater, especially before I got into this work. I used to do it so much more unconsciously. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's fascinating because diet culture really historically has taught us it's all about willpower, right? And it's all about just stay in this little, you know, exercise more, eat less, or, you know, there's no real, there hasn't been, I'd say until really recently. And to be honest, I think this is still a really um, niche topic because diet culture is like a multi-billion dollar <laughs> industry. Yeah. And I could go off on a tangent about how like even wellness is now just diet culture rebranded with a bow, right? So yeah. there's a lot of things that we could unpack here, but I think, you know, food, really learning. I think this education behind why we make these choices has been some of the most empowering healing in my own work, right? Because mm -hmm. it's that shame. And I've talked to so many clients about that shame that they mm -hmm. feel when they go and eat the whole bag of Doritos or, yeah. you know, um, <laughs> eat the whole jar of peanut butter. And I know how I've been able to personally work through that shame, um, even myself. And I'm just curious, before we even get into talking about like changing habits, I'm sure that this shame component kind of yeah. keeps people trapped and stuck. And so can we talk a little bit about the shame that goes along with the food and mood component of eating? I'd be happy to, because I think like you're saying, this keeps people stuck. And, you know, the diet industry, uh, I think whether willingly or, or inadvertently actually enables that as well, where if you focus on, you know, here's the latest and greatest diet, whatever it is, doesn't even matter what it is, it sets people up for failure because it implies, oh, all you have to do is follow this diet and you will win the game, whatever the game is. The problem there is it assumes that all you have to do is use your willpower. The, the major problem, there are two problems with that. One is from a neuroscience standpoint, willpower is more myth than muscle. And we can get into that in a minute. Uh, so that sets people up for shame because they feel like, well, I know what to do. I just can't do it. So there must be something wrong with me. And then they get into these shame spirals and they spend all of this energy beating themselves up, thinking there's something wrong with them when that energy could actually be transformed and used for the benefit of their wellness, for true wellness, not just some wellness industry. <laughs> yes. Thank you for bringing that up. That's something that's come up for me working with clients where there's this, this sort of, once you, once you start to build awareness around how much energy and brain power that you've given over the course of your life. I think, I think it's not, 
unique to women, but I think it's exacerbated like culturally for women too, in particular, how much energy you've given to this and, and, you know, sort of being at war with yourself in this way. And then you start to build awareness around it and realize, oh my gosh, what could I have been focusing that energy? What could I have been creating, you know, having, having had redirected the amount of energy I put in this to, you know, something really like value creative in, in my life, in the world, in our, in our society, whatever that might be. And then there is like an element of grief that goes along with that when you start to build awareness around it. So I guess the question in this is through your own you know, research, what have you, what have you learned as people start to, you know, you talk about like the building awareness and you give tools in the book too, which I think are really um, great sort of practical, tangible things to use. But as people start to develop awareness around this, what do you see? What have you seen start to surface in that process for them? Well, I think the, First thing that I've seen, I've seen this both clinically and also in our research studies, is that, you know, one, it's extreme, change is scary, right? And and I wrote a bunch about that in, in my unwinding anxiety book. That's where anxiety comes from, is like we're moving out into the unknown. And so just knowing that changing what we've typically done is scary helps actually us helps us know that, oh, I can expect this, so it's not as scary. And I mention that because what I what I encourage people to do, and this is very much aligned with anybody that's tried things like intuitive eating and things like that, is that um, you know I encourage people to go ahead and you know and eat, for example, whatever the habit is, and start to bring awareness to that. And that some people are like, but I've had food rules my whole life. No way. I'm just going to go off the rails if I don't follow my rules. And then I ask them, well. Have you never gone off the rails? And like, well, I go off the rails all the time. And so I'm like, okay, <laughs> so try it one more time, but bring some kindness and some curiosity when you do, because often when people go off the rails, they get stuck in these shame and guilt spirals that actually keep them closed down. They get in this fixed mindset and they're not actually open to learning. And so if we can bring some a heap, a mountain of kindness with us as we go along this journey, it helps us stay open to learning so we can actually learn because often we learn more from quote unquote failure than success. When everything's going well, we're not actually learning. So that's the first thing I would say. And the second thing that I've seen here is that the, you know, well, we've, we've talked a little bit about it, but this willpower piece, folks have to be willing to try something else. And if all they've ever known is willpower, again, it gets to that scary place. And so here I would encourage people Hey, you know, just try it. Take that leap of faith. And first off, see how much the willpower has worked for you so that you might think, okay, maybe this hasn't worked for me and it's exhausting and it leads to shame and all this stuff. So we can start to become disenchanted with the willpower myth and then say, okay, I'm ready to try something new. So those are the first things that I've seen. But the other thing that I've seen that's really helpful to help people take the leap is just a little bit of information to help them understand how their brain works, right? And so even the stuff that we already talked about around positive and negative reinforcement and how these habits get set up is tremendously empowering for people because they've suddenly been able to see, oh, 
this is why I do this. This is how my brain works. And if they can see the mechanistic process, then they can start to work with it. Yeah, no, it makes so much sense. I call it, it I, I, I live and breathe <laughs> what you're talking about, but I also call it almost like leaning in yes. to those moments because, you know, um, similarly, the more food education I had when I, you know, went back to school and I started learning about all this stuff, it really changed my relationship with food and my body just from mm -hmm. learning about food education and gut yeah. health. And as you're talking about these bliss points that these companies are like literally you know, getting us to hit every time we eat something that has sugar in it. What, you know, again, I can go off on a lot of tangents, but, you know, I also, there was a time of food insecurity in my childhood. And so even learning about people who grow up food insecure and their relationships with food, yep. mind blowing, so empowering. Right. Yep. And so I have all of the tools in my toolkit, right. When I'm feeling emotionally charged or, I've had a overwhelming day or overstimulated is a big trigger for me. Like if I'm just overwhelmed, it's a big, <laughs> lots of emotional output will make yeah. me want to emotionally eat and nourish myself with food. And yes, I have a toolkit of things that I could do, right? I could go on a walk. I could take a bath. I can hug my husband. I can do X, Y, and Z. But sometimes I, I want to eat it, what yep. I want to eat. Like yep. sometimes I'm like, I'm going to... I know I'm full, but I'm going to make a choice to have an extra couple scoops of peanut butter mm -hmm. or, you know, and again, I'm talking about emotional eating, not binge eating, which is a different thing, mm -hmm. but leaning into that, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to go have like a bowl of popcorn now with my movie, even though I'm not physically hungry, leaning yeah. in has been so unbelievably empowering yeah. and it's made it become fewer and farther between those incidents because like you're talking about, like the shame is there. The will, it's not about this myth, right? Myth, it's more myth than muscle, as you said, of willpower. And I just find it so empowering and and interesting, you know? And yeah. but it takes a lot. I can't tell you how many times where, you know, like you just literally, like you just said, just from experience for our listeners. It, it can be really scary to be like, I'm just not gonna have food rules or I'm not going to restrict. I'm going to yeah. be conscious of why am I making this choice? And can you maybe break down all yeah. the, maybe not all the reasons, but can we start breaking down the reasons we make those choices? Like what are yeah. the emotions that, that lead to that? Yeah. So it could, I've seen, and you probably have as well. I can't think of a single emotion that hasn't led to it. <laughs> so the emotion, <Yeah. laughs> whatever it is, as long as it's strong, it's going to, and it's associated, it's going to get somebody to do it. So here's where we can actually double click on some of the neuroscience about making choices, right? And it's really interesting. Uh, there's a term called confabulation, meaning that we often will make a choice and then we'll justify it and think that we've made the choice based on a rationalization that actually comes up to a half a second before we've already made that decision. And so there are these experiments, Leibniz experiments, bunch of scientific experiments showing that we're often making a decision before we're even consciously aware of it. So making a choice is an, you know, it's it's often not that I'm I'm going going to decide to do this, but sometimes it is. So one way that we make choices is that we simulate experience, and so our brains are really good at simulating the future. And so if we're going to make a choice, we're going to say. What do I want right now? You know, 
and we we think, oh, broccoli or chocolate, you know, and what our brain is doing is it's simulating what it's like to eat that food based on our past experience. Okay. And then it's going to say, oh yeah, chocolate. Typically from a, you know, from a survival standpoint, our survival brain says, dude, chocolate every time it's, you know, more calorically dense. So we have set up reward values for different foods and also at different situations, right? If we're starving, you know, uh, we might, for me, it's like, oh yeah, I need some protein right now because I know it's going to last for a while and I'm not going to be hungry later. I'm not going to get a sugar rush and crash and all of this. I used to be addicted to gummy worms. That didn't work out so well. Let's just put it that way. But the piece here that we can actually, where we think that we're making a choice, but we're actually not making choices is when that becomes habitual. And so we've set up these reward hierarchies in our brains and we think, oh, I'm making a choice. I'm making a choice to eat the whole you know, jar of peanut butter or whatever. But that's actually based on previous experience where we've decided already it's this rewarding. And so the really fascinating thing that we discovered that, that's actually been known for decades is that the only way to change a habit is to actually pay attention as we do the behavior. Nothing to do with willpower. Willpower is not even in the equation. And we did a study. We published this a couple of years ago. It only takes 10 to 15 times of having somebody pay careful attention as they overeat or eat junk food for that reward value to drop below zero. And the way that works is that we just really briefly, if we pay attention and something is better than expected, we're going to get what's called a positive prediction error. We get dopamine firing. We learn, oh, this is really good. On the other hand, if we pay attention and something's not as good as expected, we get this negative prediction error and our brain says, oh, that's not so good. And we become disenchanted with it. And that's exactly what we saw empirically with our study where we had people pay attention as they overeat. And they, they found out very quickly that overeating does not feel good, right? And within 10 to 15 times, that reward value was below zero consistently enough that they could change that behavior. I didn't hear willpower in that equation, right? It's all about awareness. And so we can we make these choices based on changes in how rewarding a behavior is, and that's all critically dependent on something that we all have, which is awareness, right? And so it's just a matter of fostering that curious awareness. I'm not saying it's it's trivial. You know, it's simple but not necessarily easy. I just want to highlight that. Yeah, and thank you for sharing too that it takes, you know, it doesn't in the grand scheme of things, 10 to 15 or times of doing something um, is not a lot, even though it feels like someone might hear 15 times of of doing that overeating, whatever it might be, um, to change the behavior. But in the grand scheme of life, it's really right. not. If and, they've done it for 30 years, 15 right, times, exactly. forget about it. <laughs> it's like you could do that in a week, you know? Um, and, and just so for any of our listeners, like the book really – kind of breaks this down. There's a whole section about awareness and the habits and, and it it's, um, set up in a, in a challenge in 21 days so that there's, there's this time that people can spend really getting with, with the tools that you put out to really like doing exercises and, and how, you know, the book gives that support if someone's new to this work. We want to take a quick break from this episode to tell you about today's sponsor, Sprout Living. One of our favorite new snacks are Sprout Living's probiotic almonds. Wildly delicious and irresistibly crunchy, these are the perfect gut-healthy balanced snack. 
Each pack of the sprouted and activated organic almonds contain 10 billion CFUs of probiotics, 6 grams of clean plant protein, and a variety of other superfood spices and herbs that do the body good. They're made without seed oils, which we all know are out, and the flavors. The Italian truffle is unreal delicious, and the dairy-free cheddar cheese made with turmeric and nutritional yeast always hits the spot. Honestly, we may never have another chip again. Sprout Living also makes our favorite plant-based protein blends. I use the chocolate maca almost every day. If you want to try Sprout Living, you can save 20% off your entire order by using code COURAGEOUS at checkout. Visit www.sproutliving.com and use code COURAGEOUS to save 20%. Give them a try and let us know if you love them as much as we do. You can also find direct links in the show notes. Now back to the episode. Hearing you share about that is really interesting because I had an experience recently uh, in the last, I mean, I, I can't even sort of quantify it. I think it's been in the last year, but um, I had this recognition that my relationship with alcohol has completely transformed and it very much you explaining what actually happened. I very much just related to, and I don't think I was fully conscious of the what or or the how necessarily, but I, I can relate to that. That was my experience where I never was a big drinker. Like I didn't have, I didn't have a problem per se with alcohol, but I would do it, I think habitually in certain circumstances where it's like, yeah, we're here. So it's, it's drinking wine or, um, I think actually over COVID it got worse where it was like just the habit of, you know, I think many people at home even having drinks at night. Um, or, you know, when you go out for Mexican food where you live in Southern California, it's margaritas or you go out to brunch and it's mimosas, whatever, whatever it's sort of like the cultural sort of moment um, or social moment, right, that have, that I associated with just sort of those, this is what you do or this is normal. And I really like it on, you know, on a semi-regular basis. And I started experimenting with doing periods of time n- not drinking alcohol, like maybe started with a month and then last year had the calling to sort of continue after that month. And then when it was sort of like, oh, I was, you know, I was out for a special occasion and I wanted a drink, you know, out to like a nice cocktail bar with my husband. Okay. I'm going to get, you know, a Negroni or whatever, something I enjoy. And it was enjoyable in the moment. But then even with that one drink, I'd wake up the next day and be like, oh, I I only had one drink and I kind of feel like crap. You know, it was like, was it worth it? Was it worth it? Or kind of basically doing that curiosity that like that curiosity phase. Okay. I'm going to go for a while and then I'm going to experiment on myself. And now I'm going to go out and have a couple of drinks tonight. And what, what wound up starting to happen was the habit of feeling way crappier than I felt good about it. And that really changed things for me. And I had this moment where I, I don't know. I, it's not that I'm completely off alcohol, but I go months and months between drinks now. And I was at a big event for my husband's work the other night, and there was a, you know, a, a dinner before it at a Mexican restaurant where everybody was, you know, drinking margaritas with tequila sodas because that's what you do in, you know, in LA. And 
I didn't, I had club soda. And then we went to the party and the big sort of celebration and event. And there was a big open bar with, you know, themed cocktails. And I had club soda. And it wasn't even hard. It wasn't a choice. It didn't feel like a choice per se. It didn't feel like, I was just like, no, this is what I want. And that was so fascinating to observe that um, and observe that shift. And it it feels really good, I think, on the other side of that. And it's because you get you get to get rid of the rules, I think, that you were talking about, where it was like the rules are what create that kind of war, that internal war. And it's like, yeah, if I want to drink, I'll have one. But I do know consciously now how I feel on the other side of that. Yeah. So You're beautifully describing what – so what we've found in our research is kind of a three-step process. You know, the first step is people kind of mapping out what the habit is. So let's say alcohol. The second step is becoming disenchanted Mm -hmm. with the behavior. And that all comes from the direct experience. So I think of it this way, that our our feeling body is much stronger than our thinking brain. Mm -hmm. And so it moves beyond these morals or ethics like, oh, you shouldn't drink or you shouldn't eat this or you shouldn't, you know, it's the food rules or the alcohol rules or whatever. It moves beyond all of that because our very wise body says, are you sure you want to do this? Last time you did this, you didn't sleep so well and you woke up not feeling great. And so we become disenchanted with a behavior, if it's not helping, if it's not healthy, right? Our body's going to tell us everything. No willpower needed, nothing more than awareness needed. And, you know, really just being curious and linking up that cause and effect relationship. Oh, when I drink, this is what the result is. Yeah. And so I have people ask a simple question. What am I getting from this? Right. But directly feeling into their body, not thinking, oh, I shouldn't eat this or this much of this. It's feeling, what do I get when I overeat? What do I get for me? What do I get when I eat gummy worms? Well, if I eat one, I got to eat the whole bag because <laughs> they're very addictive. <laughs> what do you get when you eat gummy worms? Can you like what? Like, is that an okay question? Like, what of do you course. get when you eat yeah. gummy worms? Well, I can tell you because I can. I haven't eaten gummy worms now. I don't know. It's been probably close to ten years. Maybe not that long, but it's been a couple of years, Hmm. but I can still remember what they taste like. And what do I get now is my stomach turns (laughs) because I'm like, oh, for me, gummy worms, when I really paid attention, they taste like this too slick petroleum type, overly sweet. Yeah. You know, um, somebody put it this way. It tastes like more (laughs) Mm. (laughs) because it's just designed to make you want more. Yeah. And so for me, if I used to be, you know, it was like I would have this frantic eating of them because I knew I'd eat the whole bag. Right. It was like mm. it wasn't even a choice. It was like I am, you know, I'm I'm going in. Yeah. You know, once I open the bag. And so I wasn't even, you know, it they didn't taste that good. I would have this, I would feel guilty about eating the whole bag. I would feel I wouldn't sleep well. You know, who's gonna sleep well with a bag of gummy mm-hmm. worms in their stomach? <laughs> no. And so all of that, you know, like we probably have gummy things in our house now because um, you know, occasionally people give them to my wife and she doesn't even ask me if I want any. Anymore. Wow. Yeah, was it's it just like they're just not appealing to me. But was the original, was it like tired? Was it a need for energy? What like was there? Were you able to discover like what habit? kind of led to going for the bag in the first place? Yeah, it was typically at night Mm -hmm. when I was tired and needed, and it wasn't the tiredness. 
it was more like it was stress or I, I just needed something, you know, kind of sweet, but it was, yeah. it was typically at night. Yeah. It's, I find it so interesting. And I love what you said earlier. I wrote it down where like our brains are really good at simulating the future. And I think that could, oh my God, I, yes. Like I just like, I'm going to use that all the time now. And um, yeah, I think, I think it's really interesting, this comment too, about going off the rails, right? And how you asked people like, oh, but I have all these rules. I can't go off the rails, but I go off the rails all the time. And it reminds me, right, of how many people want like one cookie or want the French fries and deny themselves and then end up eating the whole kitchen and the French fries and the cookies ultimately, right? It's So I think this concept of this permission you give yourself of just you know, and it's, it's all throughout the book of, you know, with these tools and these habits, cause it is really hard to do this by yourself. And I, and I love books and I love podcasts because they're accessible, right? Like anybody right. can go buy it. Anybody can listen to this episode and start to implement things that they're hearing. But I think it's so empowering to kind of take those food rules away and become conscious. And so, um, for anybody listening, I know we're starting to talk about like how to make these changes with these habits. And where yeah. I think this is like such a good example of permission. Are there any other tools that you found to be particularly, and obviously it's all throughout your book, but anything that you found really as impactful as what we're discussing right now? Well, I would say there are two main flavors of, of tools that we can build in our mental, and I wouldn't even just say mental, but our, our embodied toolkit we've talked a little bit about curiosity and awareness. We have to be curious, like, you know, instead of saying, Oh, I can't eat that. We can say, Oh, what happens when I eat that or eat all of that <laughs> or eat the whole kitchen? <laughs> right. We can develop what I talk about in the book as this disenchantment database pretty quickly. And it's really critical to develop that disenchantment database because we use that to simulate the future. So curiosity is that is a main flavor, but, just as important, and this relates to the shame conversation we had earlier, is kindness. And we there are various flavors of kindness, you know, like kindness with sprinkles is kind of like self-compassion. And so we can be kind to ourselves and we can, can be compassionate to ourselves. Compassion tends to arise when we're suffering. And so I would say when we feel like we're suffering, this is where we can just acknowledge, yes, this is really hard and bring some self-compassion in. And so the tool that, you know, the overarching theme there is, is the kindness helps us start to ask a really critical question, which is what do I need as compared to what do I want? So we can meet those needs instead of feeding those wants. Thank you. Those were the two things that I had written down earlier from kindness and curiosity. And, you know, it's interesting I know that you come from, just from doing a little research, um, studying also Buddhist philosophy, this idea of the the mind, um, mastering the mind. So it's interesting that like your work has led in this into this space too, where we get to hear sort of the social and the scientific kind of reasons behind a lot of this. Um, and Erica and I actually met through our Buddhist practice. <laughs> That's how we originally oh. connected. Yeah. So cool. I think speaking on kindness and compassion to self. The, the type of Buddhism we practice is Nichiren Buddhism, but it's very much like a, a modern practical application of, of the philosophy. But there's no practice 
for just self or just others. It's practice for self and others. And I think the more we develop compassion and kindness for ourselves, the more we can truly uh, bring that to others too. Um, Because I, I don't know that you fully can like, if you can't see the dignity in your own life, I don't know that we can fully see the dignity in others' lives as well. And that's just, you know, from our philosophy. But I think it kind of applies to this because we talk so much about the shame spiral and like being at war with ourselves and our own minds and and then also changing the way we use our energy in the world, right? Like once we have freed freed up our our minds from the cycle of um shame, pain, hurt, suffering, abuse that gets kind of manifested through through food sometimes. Mm-hmm. We can I, I just think it's empowering because it's like it it frees up so much um space to do other things and and create the kind of world we want to live in. Um yeah and if yeah. I could just add something quickly to that, you know, I totally agree with what you're saying. I would also add, and maybe you both have seen this a lot as well. Sometimes it is a very foreign concept for people to bring self-compassion in. Mm-hmm. And so sometimes I find it helpful to ask people, well, what's it like when you're kind to others as a place to start? What's it like when you bring when you're playing a compassionate role in life with others, whether it's your family members, your kids, your friends, your community, whatever? And even asking them, you know, it's like, well, what's it like? You know, like, well, feels pretty good you know when they when they get over this squirreliness of like i'm not you know you know because often we don't like to think about ourselves doing good things it can you know not being you know getting over the uh, not being self-righteous but when we start to see that we're compassion for others feels good then we can start to ask the question well why can't i bring that same compassion to myself and it opens the door for people just to start asking that question. It's like, well, I'm holding myself to a different standard. Is this arbitrary? Is this a habit? And typically it's a habit. Yeah. Thank you for adding that. I think that's really true. And I've seen it even people starting practice. We chant every day and people are like, well, I'm having a really hard time chanting for myself. Mm-hmm. So it's like, okay, we'll chant for somebody you love because we all love somebody. So it's like, if if that's the place to start, that can open up a lot for ourselves too. So thank you for adding that in. Um, We could talk to you forever, (laughs) but as we start to wrap up, uh, we ask our guests three wrap up questions. And the first one is at this stage in your life, how do you take care of yourself on a daily basis? Do you practice um, self-care in any ways? And do you have any non-negotiables? Great question. So you know, I'm trying to bring this into a moment by moment practice. And so, you know, as you're saying earlier, you, we have these arbitrary distinctions between self and others. And so one thing that I've, my, my, I've actually said is kind of a new year's aspiration is to just notice uh tone of voice. Like, is there any harshness at any point, especially, you know, like with my wife, because it's, you know, it's like we give ourselves leeway to to not be as nice to our partners as the rest of the world for some crazy reason, right? Because they'll stick with us. Uh, so that's one thing that I've been explicitly playing with as a non-negotiable is like, can I be as kind as possible, even in my tone of voice, not just to myself, but to everyone? And then, you know, going from there, just keeping an eye out for any type of, of, 
kind of selfishness or, or non-kindness in the world, whether it's what I eat because that's taking care of myself or not, uh, or interacting with a customer service representative on a phone when something when something's not going right. That's a thing I really struggle with. <laughs> it's like it's not their fault that my phone isn't working or whatever, you know. And and so just seeing how much I can bring like basically, you know, kindness in, not as like, oh, I'm trying to virtue signal or something like that, but just like it just feels so much better at the end of the day to look back on the day and be like, yeah, I wasn't, I was less of a jerk today. Yeah. That's, that feels pretty good. Let me, you know, let me see if I can do even more of that tomorrow. And so everything becomes an act of not just self-kindness, but a kindness toward the world. Cause again, you know, they're not really separate. So long-winded answer to your very important, but short question. No, that was great. Thank you for sharing that. And the next question we always ask is what does being courageous mean to you? Mm, this brings up one of my favorite quotes, I think that it was James Stevens who said, curiosity will conquer fear even more than courage, than bravery will. And so here I see curiosity as courage, as like my superpower cape for being able to lean. You said this earlier, right? Turning toward to lean into everything, especially if it's hard, because that's where I can learn the most. And so to me, courage really comes from curiosity. Yeah, I love that. It reminds me of, okay, I, I'm i going to quote Ted Lasso. <laughs> Not, I mean, there's there was like a rumor that maybe it was Walt Whitman, but I haven't done research on this. But there's a quote that he shares in, I think it's like season two of Ted Lasso. And he says, be curious, not judgmental. And I, I fundamentally think like, curiosity, kind of the opposite of, of judgment. It takes us out of the place of judgment. So, so remember you. that scene in the bar when he's playing darts with the dude? That's that's the scene. Yeah. yeah. And yes. he's like, scene. you know, we're going to bet the entire team on this dart game. And if you've yeah. just been curious and asked me if I'd ever played darts before, you wouldn't have, <laughs> I wouldn't have kicked your butt. Right. I love that's that. the best scene. That's the ever. scene. So um, the final question we have is, of course, in addition to your own books, uh, do you personally have a book you'd like to recommend to our audience? It can be on any topic. It can be a novel, anything, just something that you've really enjoyed or has meant something to you. Mm. You know, I this really hit home during the pandemic, um, but I was introduced to this beautifully illustrated book. Oh, Charlie, somebody, the the boy, the fox, the mole, and the horse, or something. The boy, the mole, the fox, and the horse. Mm -hmm. It's this beautiful, beautiful uh, story of friendship, kindness, love with ex with just these ink drawings that are absolutely amazing. Uh, and so, the boy, the mole, the fox, and the horse. I think. Um, anyway, that's one of my all time favorite books now. Thank you. We can look it up and link it too in the show notes. Um, and if anybody wants to find you, buy your book, follow your work, where can they do that? Uh, drjud.com, D-R-J-U-D.com is my website. It's got a, you know all the resources in there. Great. Thanks, Dr. Judd. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Courageous Wellness. Tune in every Wednesday for a new episode featuring a different guest each week. 
subscribe, rate, and write us a nice review. And you can also follow us on Instagram at Courageous Wellness or get in touch via our website, www.courageouswellness.net, where you can also find additional info about our health coaching services, virtual group events, newsletter, and more. Until next week, I'm Allie. And I'm Erica, and we're Courageous Wellness.